about the moon above they disapprove of our untamed desire how often been told that love grows cold, but we've invented fire. We're called barbarians because we found romance. They see the of rapture we'd face capture Eden's not for those their in jungles that and all fate's rendezvous we'll let our passion flow Without taboo Because the joy of being savages Being savages with you The joy of being savages being savage Hello, listeners. I am David Blakesley, and this is episode 123 of the Criterion Reflections podcast, and it is good to be back in this chair again. Uh, if you're a regular listener, maybe you noticed it's been a while since I put a new episode out. Uh, that was episode 122, which I think was back around the end of June. Uh, Richard Doyle, who is one of our guests I'll introduce in a moment, he and I talked about uh, Dracula AD 1972, a Christopher Lee film that was briefly streaming on the Criterion channel. And if you thought that's an obscure and kind of a remote connection to the Criterion, this one is probably even more so on both counts. It's a, a selection from the Merchant Ivory Collection, a film directed by James Ivory in 1972 called Savages. And uh, we've talked about this uh, Merchant Ivory line before. We, uh, we had a conversation a couple years ago in season two. Maybe it was even like three years ago. I'm not sure. But it's a while back. We talked about Bombay Talkie. And one of our guests was with me for that conversation. We'll introduce him in a moment as well. Uh, but yeah, so we're kind of on the, on the farther extremes of what qualifies as a Criterion Collection title. But this is one that I think should stir up some very fascinating conversation. So let's get the panel introduced here and get started. I'll start with Richard Doyle. Richard, how's it going? Hey, it's going good. Good to be back. 
Absolutely. It's nice to have you on again. You've been kind of my virtual co-host, it seems, on quite a few episodes recently, and nice to nice to reconnect. Uh, and then my second guest here is Robert Taylor. It's been a long time, Robert, probably a year or so, but it's really great to hear your voice and great to be on the line with you again. News of me dying was greatly exaggerated, <laughs> and I'm so happy to be back, guys. <laughs> Absolutely. Looking forward to hearing your takes. And then our third guest is Daisuke Beppu from Tokyo. And Daisuke, what a joy it is to be reconnected with you here today. Welcome back to Criterion Reflections. Thank you very much for the invitation. And I'm uh, very much looking forward to this. And uh, thank you. Uh, it's uh, uh, right. I'm uh, excellent company. Thank you very much to all of you. Yes, I'm really happy that we were able to work this out. And so when I talk about the little bit of delay between episodes, you know, I don't really have a schedule that I try to maintain. I'm not like a rigorous weekly guy or even bi-weekly. It just kind of happens when it does. And so part of this delay was, you know, the the trickiness. If you look at where we're at, we've got uh, Robert out there on the Pacific time zone, Richard over in the central up there in Manitoba, and of course Daisuke, he's over in Tokyo. Uh, known for his greetings from Tokyo, uh, uh, introductions to his videos, and uh, just the great collection of of uh, material that he has published, uh, that you've published, Daisuke, over the years. So, you know, getting everybody on, on the same time and uh, availability uh, was a little bit of a challenge. But for me personally, it's also just been kind of a busy summer. I've been doing a lot of yard work and home improvements, uh, family events. This is kind of like a birthday season for us. A lot of folks in my family and extended family are all having birthdays. So we have a lot of get-togethers and it's Michigan, it's the summer, and you want to get out and enjoy these uh, beautiful days while the elements are in our favor, because they will be turning cold and cloudy soon enough. But uh, that's a little brief explanation as to what I've been up to. Uh, if you notice my absence, it's not due to any anything discouraging or concerning. I've really been having a, a fantastic summer, and uh, it's it is good to be back on podcasting again. I hope everybody else is doing well and, and uh, enjoying this season of the year, despite all the woes and calamities that are happening around us in the world. I do hope that you're in, in, in a good place and, and that you're blessed. And, uh, and uh, welcome back to uh, listening to this conversation as we kind of slowly, meticulously make our way through the Criterion Collection in chronological order. So yes, I mentioned that Dice K uh, has been a guest. He and I and Josh Hornback back in season two talked about Bombay Talkie. And in that episode, I just kind of re-listened to the portion of it today, um, where we talked about the Merchant Ivory Collection. It's a sideline project that Criterion put forth some years ago, I think around 2003, 04, 05. Um, and, and uh, you know, we did a pretty good thorough coverage of that. So I'm not going to really recap a whole lot here. Maybe I'll give Dice K a chance to comment a little bit about that. But I do recommend that you listen to that Bombay talkie. If you really want a little bit more background, I'll put a link in the show notes uh, since it's probably not going to show up in your podcast feed. But Dice K, you've got that whole uh, Merchant Ivory line, don't you? That's part of your uh, vast library there. Oh, yes. And uh, the Merchant Ivory collection portion is in DVD format. And mm -hmm. each title has its own release. And among those is the title that uh, we are going to be talking about today. Yes, Savages. It is a, uh, and these are, these are all out of print discs. Um, so they are not necessarily going to be easy to find. And unlike some of the other Merchant Ivory films that have gone on to become kind of, 
you know, beloved classics. I'm talking about A Room with a View, Howard's End, uh, both of which are in the Criterion Collection proper. But even films like Morris, The Bostonians, The Remains of the Day, these are all the films that really established the Merchant Ivory brand as a kind of a a safe landing place for a distinctive, well-crafted cinema, period pieces for the most part. Uh, but kind of, I was thinking about this today, kind of like the band Fleetwood Mac. You know, you maybe know about Fleetwood Mac through the Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham songs. And then you find out later on, this band had a whole career preceding them that's full of all kinds of interesting stuff. And so if you think about Merchant Ivory with those kind of uh, almost like these, you know, elegant chamber pieces and period dramas and costumes and, and all of that. Um, they definitely took a very uh, eclectic route to get where they sort of established their fame, winning Oscars and, and kind of being sort of a, a, a an epitome of classy cinema from the mid 80s up until the early 90s where they started to sort of fade out a little bit. But uh, let's maybe hear a little bit from Richard and Robert about kind of your take on the Merchant Ivory brand and films. And uh, I'll, I'll let Richard start it off. Tell us a little bit about your ongoing or maybe recent connection to Merchant Ivory films. I, I generally became aware of them in the 80s around the time Room with a View came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, that being one of their, I think, their earliest, most prominent releases and sort of Saw saw their films intermittently, like Howard's End and um, Remains of the Day and stuff. Um, I became aware, like maybe a decade ago, of the their early films, and especially this one that struck me as, well, that doesn't sound like them at all. That sounds quite fascinating. Mm-hmm. So when you told me that the next episode was on this film, I'm like, well, I have to try to see this if I can, and uh, managed to find a copy of the DVD for 20 bucks on eBay. So. Not not bad. I think it's usually fetching about twice that, sometimes more. If you, at least people are dangling it out there to see if somebody will go for it. Um, I don't think it's even streaming anywhere. I I, I did a, a a search for Savages on my Roku stick there, and there was a kind of a couple other movies by that name that came out in the past several years. But uh, this one is really kind of almost like underground. It seemed like a, it just had did not create much of a of a lasting impression, um, although I apparently it does have a bit of a cult following, and I can kind of understand that. Yeah, yeah. Would you say you're a Merchant Ivory fan, or just kind of you recognize them? I mean, you're 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 super eclectic yourself. You you watch just about everything, but uh, yeah. What are, what is your basic summary uh, view of Merchant Ivory as a filmmaking force? Um, I I. Th- I, th- I think they're uh, like the the sort of literary adaptations that they do. I think at their best, they're they're quite wonderful. I'm I'm a big fan of Howard's End and Remains mm-hmm. of the Day. Yep. They they have a tendency to sort of make polite middle brow entertainment. That's mm-hmm. I'm not sure if it's ever I'd ever call any of it outright bad, but a lot of it is unchallenging. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm a, I'm generally a fan. I, I can't say I've ever seen one of their films except perhaps maybe Surviving Picasso that I didn't like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you might be what more well versed in them than I am because I really have focused more on those kind of you know status pieces that they've put out there. But uh, let's hear about Robert's take. Robert, you've been watching Merchant Ivory for a while. Uh, I started watching while I was at AFI, and I very much enjoy their output. I like Remains of the Day probably the best. I think it's 
the closest thing they have to a masterpiece. Mm -hmm. um, but I really like Howard's End as well. Um, I wanted to do this episode specifically because James Ivory wrote Call Me By Your Name, which is one of the newer movie equivalents of My Soulmate. Mm -hmm. So I've <laughs> right. been... So I've been pretty eager to look at some of his older work and sort of see what he was doing while he was forming his own voice as a filmmaker. Mm -hmm. And, spoiler alert, it turns out he was crazy. <laughs> well, that is a pretty good lead into this very yeah, interesting little diversion that uh, Mr. Ivory and his uh, producer and partner, life partner, Ismail Merchant, put together in uh, in 1972 uh, this was a film that uh, created a little bit of a ripple at the Cannes Film Festival that year uh, was pretty well received uh, by audiences and critics there and soon thereafter opened in New York City and perhaps a few other places but did not do very well and uh, maybe there's some reasons for that um, Daisuke, let me give you a chance to kind of give us a little lead-in to the film itself. Would you care to give us maybe a little summary or a setup of what's going on here in this movie, Savages? And that'll get us going with, a, uh, with the conversation from that point forward. Oh, sure. So we begin with a, uh, a group of uh, there's what they're described as mud people. And uh, they're also described in some of the literature as uh, primitives. Uh, uh, the word primitives is used, living in the jungle or forest surroundings. And we see them in uh, some kind of uh, maybe a ritualistic or a, a sort of societal-based uh, situation or situations in this uh, environment when suddenly there appears almost seemingly out of nowhere a what's described as a perfect sphere. And this perfect sphere, we understand also, is a croquet ball, a solid croquet ball. And uh, this is uh, either anachronistic or somehow a mismatch or somehow not seemingly in keeping with the environment. Again, if, if we're talking about the primitive uh, setting, suddenly we have a croquet ball flying into the uh, environment out of nowhere. Now, this gets this group of people uh, curious and leads them to a clearing in the woods or an opening, and we see this vast mansion. Uh, and we'll t I'm sure we'll talk more about the setting because it's very important. But this vast mansion, which seems to be uh, very much part of, say, um, uh, maybe early 20th century dec uh, decor and the like. Uh, but what we have immediately is the group uh, begin to enter into this large house, this large mansion. And they see the inside, which is fully decorated. The closets are filled with clothes. Uh, the artwork is adorning the walls. There's uh, statues, like a Minerva-like statue, etc., and musical instruments and the like. And these uh, primitive uh, characters suddenly begin to become very curious and uh, begin to uh, t adorn some of the clothes and uh, take on some of the objects. When then, and then suddenly we cut to a situation where these characters have become uh, seemingly different, or maybe not so different, in their attire. Uh, they now seem to be in a, a different setting in terms of uh, what, what, how, what might this call it. Uh, they're in the 
uh, maybe a kind of uh, uh, early 20th century type of jazz age, uh, uh, Northeast America uh, setting. And uh, other differences, too, is that they are talking, there's dialogue, the photography changes from black and white and then sepia tone into color. Uh, but we also notice that this group, while there seemed to be some echo of connections with the earlier sequences during the jungle portion, there are also some uh, slight, maybe uh, uh, disconcerting or some uh, unnerving or slightly off-balance situations that begin to emerge. These vignettes that occur with each of these uh, uh, situations in the house take on a type of comedic and absurdist tone. Uh, then they try to go through the day uh, leading into maybe a dinner party and tried to take on these societal uh, mores, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, banter and talk. But we also see, too, that things uh, either break down or things take, as I say, a, a kind of comedic turn when suddenly uh, things that seem to be maybe placed in a sense of order, like, uh, um, uh, you know, maybe early 20th century uh, upper middle class or upper class societal life suddenly takes uh, yet more sort of uh, weird and chaotic twists and turns along the way. So it's this interesting almost experiment in a way uh, with a, a central location, this house, which is called Beechwood, as, an, as a sort of prime anchor for these characters to sort of drift in and out and through the place, almost seemingly jumping through time and space itself from one situation, that being the jungle primitive situation, to the other situation being uh, upper middle class or, or upper class 20th century uh, North, uh, Northeast Uni United States uh, culture. Uh, but then there are uh, comic and twists and turns along the way. So that's my very, uh, very uh, crude way of trying to describe this story. Yeah, so we're really talking a, a kind of an allegorical or a, a fable type of a film where you know there's a there's a sense of symbolism. Uh, there's there's no there's no effort to try to show us that this is a, a you know a, a probable or a likely or possible event. There's no there's no allusions to some time traveled or mystical force. That's it's just uh, civilization in the form of this this spherical croquet ball has sort of crashed into the world of these mud people. They've suddenly and without any explanation taken on all those mannerisms, and then by the end of the film, they kind of regress as the as the 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 niceties and the mannerisms and all of that turn into more you know significant tensions. There's there's uh, violent encounters. There's sexual encounters. There's uh, there's even a, a suicide. You know, there's there's all kinds of very intense dramatic things that happen from what began as almost more like an innocent childlike coming of age and awareness, and all this happens over the course of apparently like a weekend, and then the cycle wraps itself up, and the characters re-enter re the forest, uh, apparently shedding their the veneer of civilization to resume their mud people existence. So it is a flight of fancy. I think, yeah, you use the word experimental, Daisuke, um, and I think, yeah, this feels, and this, this has been borne out in some of the criticism or the the essays that I've read uh, kind of a, a a notion or a, a comic sketch that's been developed into a 
full-fledged feature film and it's not a short one either it's like an hour and 45 minutes so the the film takes its time and there are many hallmarks of quality filmmaking but I guess the bottom line is did you enjoy this film and I'll just kind of ask that same question uh, Dicegate what is your take did you did you find this a, a worthwhile and enjoyable film experience Oh, yes, very much so. Um, what's my pitch for this? Uh, it would be <laughs> like, uh, I think uh, 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 Richard and Robert had mentioned uh, Howard's End and Remains of the Day and Room with a View as uh, very famous examples of the Merchant Ivory output. So maybe I could say that my pitch for this film is like, um, it's Howard's End meets David Lynch. <laughs> that's, that's a great analogy Richard, go ahead and give us your take as far as your impressions of the film I, I take it you hadn't seen it or heard much about it before you got the disc so uh, give us your fresh take on this one I, I really wanted to like this film I, I, I'm a big fan of the screenwriters of this film and thought this is a really great idea for a film and I wish I'd seen that <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and I think that's that's the case that can be made. There there are I mean I I've watched it twice now and I've had two really different reactions and I don't want to steer the conversation too much but just tell us a little bit more about sort of where you're coming from here on this on this approach. It would be wrong to say I dislike the film I don't. I I, I think I think Deske did a good job of explaining it and I, I intermittently like it, but it's a very long film and I found it somewhat tedious at times like more clever than funny and it felt like it should be funny it, it I, I i i am glad that i watched it and i think there's quite a lot of value in it i, I like especially some of the actors do fairly good jobs with the film i just thought it, it's probably a great idea for a short film and it's an hour and 45 minutes long <laughs> it is a fascinating cast. I definitely want to get into some of that because, uh, you know, th there are some interesting performances by people who went on to do some pretty fascinating things. And, and I think some of the roles and characterizations are actually pretty, pretty well realized, given what they did. Uh, you also mentioned the screenwriter. So I want to come back to that. But let's talk to another screenwriter. Uh, Robert, you had a chance to watch this. And I, I can imagine you may have some... Um, some advice for the people who put this film together, but go ahead, just go ahead and give us your uh, your kind of first take response to this film. I, I think I'm essentially directly aligned with Richard's take, which is I do not like the movie, but I respect and appreciate what they were going for. Mm -hmm. It's it's clearly a take on exterminating Angel, except they have added a first act that was not in the first movie with the Mud People discovering the house right mm -hmm, i think mm -hmm. that that's essentially exactly what they were going for i like the first act better than act two and three because all i was thinking of was how much better it was done in exterminating angel um yeah, yeah. but i think that there are some wonderful wonderful sequences some wonderful visuals and i so love just the even though it's on the nose, I love the move from black and white and sepia tones to color. Mm -hmm. I think that all of that is entirely worthwhile. I wish I liked the movie more. It should have been 45 minutes. <laughs> okay. Well, let's let's go ahead and break this down, because I do want to get into that the, the different sequences and, and sort of build on some of the strings. So we talked about the mud people, and, and really it's not even just in black and white, but it's truly like a silent film. I mean, there is a soundtrack, so you're hearing 
music and it's kind of like this primitive percussive jungly type of thing with a little bit of electronic distortion thrown over the top um but there's no dialogue there i don't are there voices there may not be but there's are there are intertitles uh kind of telling us what's going on um there's also the german narration yeah <laughs> tell us about that richard what, what's up with this german narration which is not uh, translated in the subtitles if you put that option on on the dvd i i gather it's meant to make it feel like a nature film mm-hmm. or, or a scientific documentary it, it's it... uh in the criterion dvd there's a a a short clip with james ivory and he mentions that and i think he says that he was inspired by one day watching a, a Werner Herzog film. Yep. And uh, yes, and he, he, he thought it would be, it's had a nice rhythm and cadence to it, according to his view. And so he, and it had that, right, that documentary feel, as you alluded to. Um, although it, I think it's played with, uh, that, that uh, audio aspect is played with in a very intriguing way as we get further and further into the film. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if there's any German speakers among us, but I'd be interested to know if that if that uh, soundtrack even makes sense. I mean, I, I guess I would like to know what they were actually saying in relation to the stuff you see happening on the screen. But uh, yeah. Well, we've forgotten to say though that the main title sequence is completely different than the sepia tone thing. You expect that it's going to be like a 1930s style. MGM film. You're talking about the opening credits there. Yeah, Yeah. right. Although the song is, you know, nutsy cuckoo in the best way. I I really enjoyed that. Well, it's, (laughs) it's, it's a Bobby short cabaret song with this big art deco logo. And the characters are all introduced with a little quip or caption behind their name, kind of explaining what role they play in this kind of high society. So you've got a debutante and you've got a, a matron and you've got uh, kind of the, the capitalist and you've got a bully, you've got a high strung woman. So, you know, so each character has their own sort of like, you know, well, it's, it is descriptive, but there's also kind of a, a, a cutesiness to, you know, the, the way they're introduced. So, so you, you're expecting this comedy of manners, perhaps, you know, this kind of aristocratic exchange of characters crossing up. And you, you do get to that point, but boy, you are completely thrown off after that opening credit scenes, and then all of a sudden we're, we're in mud people territory. Yeah, and can we just give credit for the best, you, you just mentioned it, David, but the best description was, I think the character's name is Archie. Archie, the bully. Oh, that <laughs> right off the bat made me laugh. <laughs> yep. Now, uh, does anybody want to talk about who Archie, that the actor who played that bully, who he grew up to be? Martin Cove. It's Martin Cove, yes, Martin Cove. Yeah. The, the villain in Karate Kid. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Cobra Kai. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, pretty, and that's and that's part of the the fascination for me with this film is is kind of touching on who these characters, these actors were. Uh, apparently, they were all based in New York. Um, this Beechwood mansion that Daisuke mentioned was an all but abandoned estate. It had uh, belonged to a, the Vanderlip family. Apparently, they had made their fortune in the railroad business which was actually kind of maybe a a little side allusion to one of the conversations that are had around at the dinner party where they're talking about the uh 
you know, the effect of colonialism and, and fortunes made in the railroad. But, but anyways, this, this mansion had been built. It's uh, kind of up north of New York in the Hudson Valley, Hudson River Valley area. And it's a very stylish piece of architecture. But it, apparently, uh, the family had pretty much had their peak and the, the children of the, uh, the, 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 the patriarch who had established the fortune had all moved away. So there was a grandson and a great-grandson who are described in the liner notes as having camped at this at this estate. So the the building was was full of all kinds of period stuff, furniture, perhaps even clothes. And I think that's where they landed on that kind of 1930s jazz era uh, setting because it was just right there. And, and this was a low-budget production, but they apparently got access to this really incredible piece of property and that kind of set the stage for, well, we've got this this place we can make a movie. What will we do with it? Daisuke, you want to talk a little bit more about the genesis of this project and how it all fell together? Yeah, well, I think you you uh, yeah you explained it very well. Yes, essentially James Ivory uh, stumbled upon this place, right, Beechwood, which, as you say, has this very uh, interesting history, but was, uh, according to his description, abandoned. And then so uh, then I think according to the written materials, uh, he wanted to uh, collaborate or, or start a story with this. And so this is where the screenwriter uh, Tro, uh, George mm-hmm. Tro comes in, George Swift Tro comes in. And so uh, I think it's credited to uh, Tro and uh, Michael Donahue, but with an idea or inspiration from James Ivory. And I think that's how James Ivory describes it. He sort of provided the inspiration, but then the writing materials or the dialogue, et cetera, was given to uh, uh, Tro and uh, Donahue. So, uh, and that's where this, uh, I think this, the genesis of the story began. I, I should say too that I think in some of the, uh, in some of the uh, written materials that I was able to find, he also describes it, James Ivory does, as, uh, what is this? Uh, the strangeness made me think sometimes of a kind of Hudson River last year at Marion Bad. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, I, and I can see that because you are, in a, in a sense, playing tricks with time and space and identity. And, yes. And all of that, you know. Uh, now, Richard, you had mentioned, I think, in your opening comments, you were fans of the screenwriters. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Tro and O'Donohue? Um. Tro is um, like one of the uh, editors of the Harvard Review and went on, it was one of the forming editors of National Lampoon with Michael O'Donohue, who had been a playwright before that. So the two of them are like the some of the main figures at National Lampoon during its first three, four years. And O'Donohue went on to be the main head screenwriter at Saturday Night Live. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's pretty cool pedigree and and obviously i think they they had a kind of an assignment to sort of take this notion that uh james ivory came up with and said okay let's let's make a story here and and i think o'donohue in particular i think he gets credit for the the song and dance number stomping on a spaniel (laughs) which is a real to me that was a pretty major highlight and again just comes out of nowhere uh, this kind of little uh, rodeo do song and dance number that breaks out uh, with one of the characters in particular. Um, I think Leslie is her name. She comes out in white top hat and tails, and uh, she does a nicely choreographed little number. 
And then Susan Blakely, one of my uh, first childhood crushes. I actually saw her in the miniseries Rich Man, Poor Man when it first premiered on ABC in the 1970s. And, uh, you know, boy, I, I just really felt pretty hard for this beautiful blonde woman with a big smile, uh, reminiscent of Farrah Fawcett, except I think Susan Blakely was even before Farrah Fawcett in terms of that uh, kind of particular iconic beauty. Uh, of course, her last name very similar to mine. That kind of caught my attention. But uh, it was really fun to see her uh, showing up in this. This was her acting debut. She's credited as Susie Blakely at that time. She was a, a fashion model. And you take a look at her and you can sort of see she's got all the right characteristics to be very successful in that business. She is still with us and I think she's still been acting. Robert, have you got any take on Susan Blakely's career? Uh, She's been in a lot of shows over the years and seems to be pretty, pretty prolific and pretty well respected uh, for her contributions. I suspect as soon as I bring up her Wikipedia page. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay, just okay. wasn't sure if, you, if she was a name that had stuck with you, but go ahead. Oh, oddly enough, I have met her. I did not realize this until just this minute. I have met her because she was on a panel that, while I was working at DreamWorks, she's in the Fairly Odd, she's a voice in the Fairly Odd Parents uh, as oh. Mrs. Turner, and so I have met her in passing. She seems a, she seems absolutely delightful. Um, yeah. But uh, her voice acting across the board seems to be great, and I, I wish that I could add more to the conversation. I thought that she was very good in the movie, mm-hmm. and I also want to echo your sentiments from earlier, which was that Stompin' on a Spaniel musical number was i think the high point of the second half of the movie especially those costumes the white like yeah really looked and was photographed exquisitely yeah and it was really really wonderful even like i looked for it on youtube because i wanted to forward it to some of my friends <laughs> and unfortunately yeah. it's not on youtube so mm. so dear listeners if anyone has the dvd and feels like posting it on YouTube, I would be forever grateful. I might play around with that. Uh, you know, <laughs> that, that, those are kind of fun little things. Because it is. It's And, and you know, I don't think this is... It sounds like a cover of some kind of jazz age, 1920s, little foxtrot type of classic. But it was, it was made for this film. And probably lives in obscurity ever since but it's uh it's it's pretty hilarious you know and i or you you will hear it on the outro music on this episode (laughs) yes if we do want to talk about a cast member i would love to talk about da jack mccoy sam waterston yes super young and super dreamy um as the man who's about to be sacrificed turning into the limping man and then the wonderful sequence at the pool where he just keeps falling on it <laughs> three times i think it is yeah <laughs> yeah i yeah. i thought that incredible charisma right off the bat i thought that his was probably at least for me the best performance in the movie what do you guys think i think he functions as sort of the conscience of the film and again you know the conceit of this whole story is uh, you know take it or leave it i mean this is not a profound hefty critique of the you know the flaws or the tragedy of western civilization it's 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 a flight of fancy i think i've already used that term but he is the one who sort of calls the shots and points out the hypocrisy and i think in that sense he plays a pretty important role any other reactions yeah his character at the dinner party scene has a number of really 
fascinating dialogues, one of which is, I think, David, you alluded to it right now. He actually mentions that, oh, I recall I was in Africa and I had encountered these people, the mud people. And so that is almost a, an odd reference to themselves, although no, no one in the room acknowledges it. And right. then that leads to the, to the discussion about uh, destruction of civilizations and annihilations. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sir Harry and and the like, and that leads also to the political discussions with Nerder, etc. So, but you're right that that's from uh, from his character, the Sam Watterson mm-hmm. character, and also there's yeah. another conversation there. But then he adds into the great non sequiturs of uh, the rest of the uh, of the uh, of the group. I think in that same scene, he's talking about the woman who has some uh, fantastic. Uh, gift of ventriloquism, uh, being ventriloquist, and she can speak out of many parts of her body. (laughs) And then suddenly he says, oh, but actually I'm I'm repeating this word for word from uh, such and such dictionary. So it it makes no sense, but it's it's, uh, quite uh, quite funny and and, uh, ludicrous and comedic at the same time. And he pulls it off with this great uh, serious demeanor and manner, uh, deadpan, which is, uh, I think, icing on the cake. Uh, I should probably also mention that I have also met Sam Waterston because my first show in Hollywood was Grace and Frankie. The character of Robert on that show is named after me. So I have met him and he's a sweetheart, so I might be a little biased, but yeah. I think he's tremendous. <laughs> well, I was going to say also, I'm, I'm really glad that I helped to forge this connection between you and Susan Blakely, <laughs> or at least, you know, make it make it <laughs> sort of come to the forefront there. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I definitely um, open to other I, thoughts about some of the cast members, because you're right, we've got just a, a real interesting interesting array of of um, New York based performers I think Watterson is the only one that Ivory went on to do further work with uh, but it felt like they were kind of landing in New York and making a film in America for the first time because like Bombay talkie and the earlier merchant Ivory collaborations they were films uh, kind of talking about the Anglo-Indian experience where the British culture and the Indian culture were kind of working out their you know very complex relationship in that colonial setting. So I also found that dialogue about the uh, kind of the, the, the negative implications or effects of colonialism to be kind of informed by the earlier films that Merchant Ivory were making and the role of the woman that she's part of the seed masher tribe who's kind of taken captive in the mud people opening sequence Uh, her character is transformed into a uh, a servant woman uh, who is pretty routinely despised and treated with contempt by others although you know uh, the, the bully I think he sort of sort of sexually molests her although she seems to be consenting in that but it's it's definitely a, a, a an interaction of yeah you know, uh, what's the, the the power dynamics are not on equal terms here so so you do see some political cultural critique going on here she's a jazz singer that actress that's right okay tell us a little bit more about that yeah that's that's ashley asha poothley who sings on um Ornette Coleman's album, Science Fiction. Okay, that's that's brand new to me. Daisuke, did you want to say more about that as well? Oh, yes. Well, uh, just to add, I have a book which is called James Ivory in Conversation, How Merchant mm-hmm. Ivory Makes Its Movies, and there's a section on on um, savages. And yes, uh, Asha Puthley is mentioned 
who plays the forest girl among the mud people and the housemaid at Beechwood. And uh, she's described by Ivory as from a South Indian uh, Saraswati uh, Brahmin family, the highest of the high. She's mm. first seen in The Guru as a bright young thing at a party. Asha was vaguely connected with Andy Warhol's world, but is primarily a singer with an amazing but untrained voice. She also appeared in a Louis Malle film, which I think was never released. That's according to this book. She definitely had a strong presence there. Go ahead. It's interesting the Andy Warhol reference because Ultra or a connection because Ultraviolet one of his superstars yes. in this yeah. too. Yeah. Let's well talk done. a little bit about Ultraviolet and the Warhol connection. It, it might not be much more than that. I've noticed that, that Ultraviolet and Andrew <laughs> are in this. Like, Ultraviolet had a bit of a film of an outside the Andy Warhol film career, right? Mm -hmm. I'm trying to see she. And she'd been in films before this, so outside of the Warhol connection. Her character is is uh, tagged as a decadent, <laughs> which I guess she sort of lives up to that role, I guess, in, in her various moments on screen there. Uh, she seems to be kind of a wizened voice of experience, kind of cutting through some of the naivete and getting down to brass tacks there and her various interactions, particularly with, with you know, different men in the, in the ensemble. I am curious if you guys thought that um, they, if you completely bought into them as mud people, or if you thought they were going a little bit too crass and over the top, because well, the mud... I, I'm on the fence. <laughs> well, I, I think the mud people sequence, you know, just from a sort of a critical perspective, I think if they really wanted to make the analogies of how each of those mud people sort of took on a particular role or function in the society that they were about to portray, they probably, the execution could have been sharper on that in terms of bringing the audience to get to understand who these various characters are. Because my first take, which was more of a negative take on the film, like what was this, similar perhaps to what I'm hearing from Richard and, and Robert, was I didn't really get the connections. Because my, my first impressions of the mud people were just a bunch of kind of groping amateurs kind of play acting out in the woods. You know, they have these big helmet masks on or the women uh, have exceptionally long braided you know wigs obviously but you know they, they look like they're caked with mud and that's partly to at least conceal some of their nudity because the characters are all the men I think are in loincloths the women maybe have something around their midsection but they're topless except for how the hair and whatever may cover them up so but it just felt like a kind of a, a band of hippies just kind of grooving around on a on a summer afternoon and I you know you, you do see little things happening to sort of establish a, a bit of hierarchy uh, we we talk we see that there's they're leading to a sacrificial type of a ritual or ceremony the inner titles do put a few things in context but i think they could have perhaps brought some of the characterizations a little bit more to the forefront to help audiences understand who's who among the mud people and then make the connection because also underneath those helmets and things you really don't know who which of those mud people became 
the person you know that's more easy to identify by their face their attire and and their behavior you know far who's who's the power couple here who's who are the hangers on who are the you know the the uh, the, the dominant or the submissive elements of this of this little clique and so robert that's one of the where, where i thought you know often especially if you've had a chance to watch a movie you, you can come up with some ways of kind of cutting to the chase of like how the script or the 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 storytelling could have been a little bit more efficiently conveyed because i think that confusion perhaps is probably what may have doomed this film as a commercial effort was concerned i think there's just too many audience members who would not have the patience or the perseverance to stick with this and and almost kind of find the sense within the this kind of freeform rambling chaos that you know takes a while to figure out although at the same time there are some very subtle clues you can for example you can kind of see some of the characters maybe half unmasked or fully yep. unmasked mm-hmm. uh, as one of the clues also in the intertitle or the 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 title cards that sometimes some of the names of the people that are referenced are shown yeah. like Carlotta and we understand <laughs> yes, the yes. priestess right and we understand mm-hmm. that this will be translated perhaps later to uh Carlotta the 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 leader of this house party and then Julian uh, yep. who's going to be the, the young musician uh, mm-hmm. later on. And also Hester Leslie. It's written, I think, yeah. without vowels. but And they're shown hunting for the narcotic leaf. Yeah. Uh, they're well-positioned <laughs> yes, yeah. to find the narcotic leaf, uh, which also, I think, leads to uh, sort of recreational drug use as well, which also might suggest an interpretation of this film as a type of, of uh, uh, drug fantasy. Uh, but also, yes, right, hallucination. Right, right. Yes, I think. It, mm-hmm. uh, but also, they they're seen in type of almost uh, interpretive uh, dance. Mm-hmm. You know, they're in this. They're like walking in one embrace, and they're hunt. They're hunting. But I think, yeah. Then we, we understand that Hester and Leslie uh, are going to come from these two characters. So there are some subtle clues, but at the same time, yes, because of the masks, it's hard to associate. Uh, maybe uh, get into the characters uh, during the sequence, uh, especially maybe upon initial view. But I think upon yeah. a repeat view, uh, a lot becomes more revealed. And that was very much my experience. The second time through, I, I found myself enjoying it because I, now I was prepared to kind of settle in and sort of see how the different pieces fit together. And that's that's how it, it often is with me. But I think for, you know, again, the casual moviegoer, um, subtlety mm. can sometimes lose the audience pretty quickly. I, I respect directors who will allow subtlety to stand on its own, that they, they respect the audience and the willingness of the viewer to put the pieces together and make something out of it. But that means you're going to, you know, probably lose a portion of, uh, their, of your potential audience there. And I further think that they sort of, if we move to the second half of the film, they have another distancing issue, which is the dialogue. Mm. I think that the dialogue gets so weird and esoteric <laughs> at a certain point, yeah. and purposefully distancing. And I know that, again, I know that they did it on purpose, but a lot less of it would have made their point a lot clearer, I feel like. Because my eyes started to glaze over, and I ended up having to rewind entire sequences. Mm-hmm. Like, if someone can explain the fruit thing to me, by all means, I am all. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was hilarious, but I, anybody else want to talk? What, 
what is it called again in the uh, credits? Uh, bletology, you know, the interpretation <laughs> of fruit. <laughs> How does it work? Ether waves. I've forgotten what it's called. Bletology. Can you use any fruit? But peaches are the most sensitive. Bananas speckle too easily. They tend to attract stray particles. For the novice, I usually recommend pears because of the pronounced stems. And what part do the stems play? The stems indicate the quadrants. Fruit grows toward the afternoon sun, the west. The stems bend toward the east. From the stem, one can determine the four directions. Each direction corresponds to a season. One must simply identify the configurations, place them in their quadrants. What causes the shapes? The specter on the fruit is merely the shadow thrown by events in the future. The blemish occurs in late summer, south, southwest. What do you see? What do you see? Duplicity, bail, remorse, glandular imbalance, obscurity, ziggurats, an illegible missive, a soiled kimono, explosions at the mill, laughter behind one's back, misinterment, flypaper, rubber sheets, Rubber sheets, trench warfare, tunnel vision, a basement, laudanum, pitch blend, worthless endearments, trick cigars, ink eradicator, ant farms, Signals through the flames, webbed fingers, travail, weevils in the tea, trouble down the line, things best forgotten, a punctured thumb, misplaced trust, cheap emotions. Faded carpets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can I can I offer the film a backhanded compliment? Sure, go ahead, Richard. Does it really matter what the connection between the two are? The, the two sets of people are because that's that's sort of why it didn't bother me i guess i thought okay the, the major point is that they're they haven't really changed which yeah. which, which, I, which i essentially got right like even without being able to do a one-to-one -one mapping and i guess my question is and this is honestly a question having only watched it once is there a deeper point being made that's a fair question because i I, I kind of got it, and one of my one of my issues with the film was once I got it, it felt like it still went on for like forty five minutes. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, I, I echo Richard's sentiments. I, I think it's essentially the exact same message as Exterminating Angel, which can we talk a little bit about the parallels between these two movies? It's, yeah. you know, all of the bourgeoisie are essentially savages at heart and so on and so forth. Uh, and like Richard, I thought to myself, yeah, I get it. <laughs> and then I realized there were 50 minutes left. Well, Daisuke, you want to weigh in on any of that? I think there are many types of films, right, in the world. And, like, I, I don't see this... I mean, there are, you know, there are films that have a maybe a political message. There are films that might have a, a more slightly uh, nuanced satirical message, straight, uh, just uh, full-blown comedies, or etc. I, I find this film maybe... I don't. I don't see it as having a message per se. I see it as, how should I put it? I'm going down these various roads, and it leads me to these dead ends, <laughs> and I can either kind of stand there and be like, "Oh my goodness, I'm in a dead end." I'm. I'm. Or I can just stand there and just laugh at the situation, mm-hmm. and that's why I feel every time there's a bit, bit piece of dialogue, you're absolutely right. All the works of dialogue, while you can try to fit in a type of structure, like I think perhaps I think uh, uh, to David's point about um, there might be an echo of some kind of comment on colonialism. I think that's one of the uh, I think that's a really great possibility in terms of a possible interpretation structure. However, I don't think one needs to have that in order to to get into the zone of this film. And when I say the zone, there's like a there's like a zone. I mentioned David Lynch before, and I think uh, the more I think about it, I I I I'm very comfortable with that uh, comparison because when I watch a David Lynch film, I have a similar thing going on, which is I get into a zone and I I watch these characters and they sometimes have these dialogue scenes sometimes together and one character doesn't talks about something that doesn't make sense with the other characters talk, right? But we get into it because there's a type of almost absurdity that itself is very entertaining. That's exactly how I feel when I watch this film, Savages. I mean, some of this, you look like the, 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 the dialogue scene, which I think is so clever, is, as an example, is the, it's, what's her name? Penelope. The, she's described as the high-strung girl, I think. Mm-hmm. She's talking at the dinner party about uh, the model, the, the, the model of the villa in the library. And it's a miniature, and it's the artist, what's his name? He's described as Andrew Chatfield. And he goes, and she talks about his life in a very solemn and tragic and sad way. And how his wife, the artist's wife, died from tuberculosis. And one of the evil critics planted a story about how at the moment of dying, this artist wanted to capture the, the, the precise shade of red of the blood that was coughed. You know, this terrible, this horrible, the tragic, <laughs> yeah. melodramatic things. And then suddenly these other characters are like, well, actually, I think that's not true. I think, I think she, she outlived him. And she went on to marry someone. Yes, I think actually uh, he died yeah. before the house was made. So the, all these these non sequiturs <laughs> suddenly come in and right. burst the bubble, and you just have to stand stand there and laugh because you're, you're dealing with these very off balance things that uh, you go with it or you, know, you kind of go with it in the zone. I can I can totally get how, especially upon first viewing, and I felt this way. What's going on? What what's what are these people talking about? I I have no idea what's going on here. But then. I understand getting into that zone 
makes it very, very funny. Yeah, I, I think that's a great observation, Dice K, where you, you, you know, and again, I'm not saying, you know, Robert and Richard dropped the ball because they're not on the same wavelength, but I think you do have to make some adjustments to get into the O'Donohue's, um, you know, wit here, where there's kind of an erudite, you know, kind of the way he kind of kneecaps this, this solemn tribute and this kind of reverent account with immediate contradiction and deflation. I mean, that's the kind of thing Monty Python does and another humorist of this era, just kind of, uh, you know, Bunuel himself, you know, just the, the poking the absurdities of, of kind of pompous or sentimental types of accounts with something just completely random uh, that is a juxtaposition of what you were perhaps expecting the scene was going to lead up to. So, yeah, you, you, you just kind of take it for what it is. And I think, you know, the criticism that says that this account or these these in-jokes in were more amusing to the creators and to the audience, I, I think that makes sense. But if you can get a little bit into where the creators were coming from, then I feel like, yeah, you, there is some genuine wit here and there are some things to enjoy once you've kind of sort of calibrated your sensibilities to sort of see what they're up to here. Um, But you're right. And so so what's the ultimate point of all of this to say that, you know, people who are rich and elegant and powerful or down at the heart of it, you know, venal and petty and corrupt and voracious? Well, yeah, we we know that. (laughs) But it's, it's, to me, this is just kind of, this is the merchant ivory, kind of hippie counterculture freakout movie if, if if there is such a thing. Oh, I love that description. That's so great. And any <laughs> any film that has a song called Stepping on the Spaniel, David you mentioned this with the dance, I mean Susan Blakely yeah. not 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 only that the the aura that she gives uh in this yeah. film, but also that dance Right. When she Literal emerges with that, out yeah, there, yeah. <laughs> amazing, and just what, what's and it, they all join in with their own version of it, and and the young girl with that wonderful weight, it's just she glides from left to right in the screen. Yeah. What's going on here? It's it's brilliant. Yeah. Oh, I'm yeah, sorry. I, mean, I, I yeah. yeah. I, I interrupted you. I I apologize. No, no. That was that, that's great. I, and just even the positioning of that child, like the one child in the movie, and she's like off on her own table eating all by herself. <laughs> yes, like, what exactly. What is that all about? With curtains right with behind her. Talk about a David yeah. Lynch film. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. You're. You're. That's a very. That's a a great observation. Good connection. I, I think. Uh, I mean. To be somewhat clear, I, I don't disagree with what you guys are saying, and that's yeah, why yeah. I would say I don't dislike the film. Mm-hmm. But I think I, I take somewhat. I I don't know that I'd want to compare this to, for example, Monty Python, because I don't think Monty Python would ride a joke for an hour and forty five minutes, and that's no, really Python my is issue with the film. No, Monty Python is much more efficient in packing little barbs in there, and they they do they do keep things moving. I'll, I'll give them. That. And they'd have more than one joke. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, I think I just to be blunt, it's not my type of comedy and it's not my type of movie to begin with. Sure. And a younger, right. angrier, more certain of himself version of me would have seen the movie and been like, fuck this movie. Oh, I know we're not supposed to curse David, <laughs> right. I'm sorry. But no. No. but I would have been like, No, this is terrible, blah 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 blah. And now the older, <laughs> more refined version of myself who has made peace with the fact that he doesn't like last year at Narayan Bad, for example, which I think is a, another good comp for this movie, uh, just takes what I can from it that I 
very much enjoy, but I think sort of quantifiably, and I'm curious to hear what everyone else, oh, David, what you think, and Daisuke, what you think, don't you guys think it would be better cut down tremendously? <laughs> I think there could have definitely been some trimming here, but but again, that's that's almost the nature of you know. Well, I'll sort of build on that hippie counterculture freakout movie. It's just like it's just kind of wild, and it goes, and and some parts are going to work, and some parts are not. And if yeah, so if you really judiciously trimmed it down and and made it maybe like a forty-five to sixty-minute you know sort of short feature type of thing, yeah, I think you you might have something that kind of gets its point across a little bit more efficiently but i i would imagine in the editing room there were just too many bits that they thought oh this is just fun i don't want to lose this i want to share this with our audiences and and i again i kind of go back to the kind of the woolly spirit of the times you know the early 70s was just kind of like this sort of a mini big bang of just let's let's do things that we haven't been allowed to do on screen before and let's talk about some of the you know the transgressive elements of this film we've got cross-dressing we've got a pretty steamy uh intimacy scene in the vehicle towards the end between two women i mean there's there's some stuff that is you know a little bit on the provocative side there and and again no real explanation or context for it all um it's it's a it's a way of depicting uh kind of the unraveling and perhaps the descent into decadence uh, as the night wears on as the you know the cycle of life goes from like the early portion where they're, they're playing with trains and sitting around like children kind of just fumbling and and experiencing life anew and by the end of the night and the wee hours they're they're pretty jaded and pretty uh you know uh debauched in in their interactions with each other so you've got a whole cycle of of uh, you know a person's life and the, you might even say the, the way a culture develops from innocence and and uh, discovery to cynicism and and uh you know corruption you know all within a very abbreviated cycle there i agree <laughs> i think it's one of those things where i think that you said it so well <laughs> that I'm not sure I have anything else to say. That's fine. I mean, yeah, I mean, maybe we can say we've given the film, you know, due coverage there. And especially for the fact that for a lot of our listeners, I hope people have checked out this episode, even if you haven't seen the movie yet. You know, there's not really, this isn't the kind of movie that you can really spoil. But I think given our panel, given the fact that we haven't done one of these, and this is just such a fascinating little curiosity piece, uh, that hopefully this might prompt a few folks to seek it out and, and get a copy somewhere. Um, you know, I don't really travel in the, uh, you know, the, the, the bootleggy streamy places of the internet. So I don't know if there's copies out there that can be pulled out of the ether. Uh, but as far as I can tell this, this DVD edition is the only one, you know, the Cohen collection has already purchased the rights to merchant ivory releases, but I don't, know that they're going to be putting this one out anytime soon um unless there's maybe a little bit of demand for it but uh it feels like a long shot that this one's going to get any kind of a high profile mainstream release in the foreseeable future i'm also curious if uh any of you guys know what effect this had on ivory's career because i'm just looking at his filmography and he made a movie essentially every year or every other year from the beginning until he sort of petered out 
And this is the only three-year break after Savages before Autobiography of a Princess, which is sort of back to his usual collaborators and back to, you know, the themes that he would embrace throughout his career. So I'm curious if it sort of, like, screwed him up and made him and Merchant um, difficult to find money because it was such a... You know, once it was released to general audiences, they did not react well. <laughs> do you guys mm-hmm. do you guys think it had an effect on his career? Or have you heard anything about this? Dice can I ask you to maybe fill in the blanks? If you, if you know, I I personally do not. I do know that Ruth Prower Javala was not part of this project, right. and I think I've seen some criticisms that that mention that they could have used her. <laughs> you know, people who were not fans of this movie felt like right. she might have been a good guiding hand to kind of ground the film just a little bit. Yeah, she wrote but the they, two immediately uh, prior, and then she wrote the one after this, but not this one. <laughs> and she was involved in all of their classics, all of That's their right. big hits. So it really was, even though it's Merchant Ivory, uh, Ruth Prower Jabala was, was as key of a contributor to the, you know, the, the creative genius of this partnership as, as the other two named individuals. Yeah, I, I also want to say that I, my understanding is while, and I think David, you've mentioned this earlier too, which is uh, according to uh, according to all the materials that I've also uh, read, while I, it wasn't financially successful in the United States, I understand that, well, first of all, you, it was shown at the 72 Cannes Film Festival. And according mm-hmm. to uh, Emmett Long, it was the most talked about film at the Cannes Film Festival. And also, yeah. it had a lot of critical praise in Europe, uh, France and England as uh, examples. So, uh, I, I don't, I don't, con- I don't uh, think that this is a a type of bomb or failure per se. Uh, but um, uh, it is a it is a very uh, uh, how should I put it an interesting film in the filmography that's for sure. Although I I just want to say one thing too, which is I I don't I think there's a good argument to make that it's not so out of left field in the context of say the the big classics of Merchant Ivory. I think one can mm-hmm. see this as a, a, an interesting almost double feature with say Room with a View or with Howard's End, and it goes back to Beechwood. Yeah goes back to the house. The mm-hmm. film is ultimately too, one of the strengths of the film is how it shows off the house. And this is a film where someone went to a location, went to a house and said, this is a great place. This is so cool. Let's film here. And that's, I understand, where the, yeah. one of the, the genesis points came in. And so if you think about that too, and you think about Ivory's, uh, Merchant Ivory films, uh, 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 Richard Robert had mentioned Remains of the Day and Howard's End earlier. Those films uh, as we know, are rooted so much in place, like Howard's End and other places in Howard's End, or Dar- uh, uh, what is it, uh, Darlington Hall, right, in uh, in Remains of the Day, if I remember that correctly. So, so these are places that have an echo and richness of history based on the people who live there. And so place and things and ornaments uh, adopt a very significant uh, importance in those films. Now, one can say the similar thing is happening in savages, because when the mm-hmm. the people enter, the mud people enter, and they talk, touch these things, they become, they essentially one can say they're transformed into a, a new set of people, right? So in that way, the place has a certain significance, and indeed, in certain parts of the film, after say the the discovery of the dog, 
in the yard the yeah. the lights flash mm-hmm. almost in the house almost like a like a a spirit or some kind of godly force yep. flash and it happens later on in the film as well so the fil- the house has a life of its own much like the houses in these other films at the same time though those other films like remain to the day and howards end i think the houses had a lived in feel their characters were based on people who lived there in the past. Whereas here, and that's, I think, one of the, the dissociations of the film, which, which I think makes for it being quite maybe difficult to enter, which is these people are visiting the house. So the house is pretty much a, an empty vessel in many ways, the, this house in Savages. So there is that further, I think Robert mentioned it her, her earlier, which is a distancing effect. The house is important, yes, but it's an empty vessel in many ways. And so in that, it's that empty vessel feeling and the, these characters filling that void, in a manner of speaking, that, that creates a, a type of playground atmosphere, which is similar, but also not so similar to the, the films that are, of, say, the classics in the Merchant Ivory canon. So that's something I just wanted to throw out there, which is it, it is yeah. left field, that's for sure. And I think it can be uh, a, quite a difficult uh, film to watch and, and perhaps in many ways uh, not so well liked as others and I, I totally get that but there is something to be said about it also fitting into the canon of Merchant Ivory I think very comfortably I, I definitely think I mean if even if you say this is kind of a, uh, a a learning experience for them of how to stage dinner parties and, and events using the architecture yes. like when Julian is kind of exiled into that upper room which even when you have those exterior shots you see that kind of high upper room uh with the windows it's, it's almost kind of like the the the, the pinnacle of the, of the structure and he's up there playing his cello kind of sealed off he's he's kind of like this uh, god's eye view of all the shenanigans going on down below uh the the orgies down in the cellar and the, the use of the swimming pool as this kind of you know pivotal you know point of confrontation and and ultimately you know death and and again debauchery uh the the car you know and, and how the vehicle is used not as a piece of transportation but as a kind of a, a, a place or for isolation and privacy and intimacy you know so there's very interesting uses of, of space and and location and uh yeah you, you sort of feel the creative juices flowing even in the um the uh, the supplemental feature, the interview between uh, James Ivory and Ismail Merchant. Uh, Ismail is talking about how the kitchen was haunted, and, <laughs> and and you could hear the the creaking of the steps and and the ghosts that were hanging around. So so he cooked this spicy Indian food to, to, to try drive the ghosts away because they were not used to the aromas. <laughs> just really, and you just get a sense of the the colorful personality that uh, Ismail Merchant must have brought into to all of this. Uh, even though his role is primarily as producer, uh, but very much a, a creative contributor to the whole enterprise. Yeah, I just building on what you guys are saying, I think that in many ways, I would rather rewatch this movie than say, I don't know, The Wild Party or something like that, because it's certainly something. You know what I mean? <laughs> it really, it. I might not like it. But it is certainly its own thing, and it doesn't just sort of disappear. Uh, in the same way, you guys probably liked Bombay Talkie, I assume. Oh, we, we had quite a good time with that film, yeah, yes. Yeah, I find it uh, uh, pretty boring. <laughs> um, uh-huh. And so I would rather watch this movie, say, 
than that again simply because at least it's creating a reaction within me at least there's so much fun stuff to dig into um mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that's not nothing guys <laughs> right that's right that's right all right well maybe maybe we're kind of coming down to the end um richard maybe to give you a chance to kind of weigh in with any other thoughts or observations i you've kind of made your case already but i want to give you a chance to kind of bring anything else to to our attention if uh, caught caught yours i'm not sure why but my emotional reaction is that i like this film even less than i thought i did but <laughs> <laughs> well you know like i say it's uh, they're kind of throwing spaghetti against the wall and some parts stick and some parts maybe didn't and and that's fine i think uh th- that is the nature of uh experimental cinema you know this will you could even i think i saw another review that called it like experimental theater where the acting troupe just sort of takes over improvises some skits and i think there is a fair amount of improvisation i think uh, again james ivory says they had about two-thirds of a script when they were starting right. and i could just imagine just you know using the energy of the place and the actors off of each other you know trying different bits and uh, you know so so it becomes kind of like a uh, an archive of, of various performances and uh, these are the ones that they decided to to mix into the final cut there and uh, we're left to make of it what we will to, to say something nice about it and to kind of echo robert i i do think there's i do think there's a lot of value value in it and i did somewhat enjoy it right i i don't want to come off as like saying i hate the film because i don't and and <laughs> right, uh right. I own it, so I'll rewatch it sometime. <laughs> there you go. It's it's part of the collection. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'm going to be slightly the other side of the coin with Richard is, even though I am saying nice things about it now, to be clear, I did not like it that much. <laughs> I think we've all pretty much made our case, and I think that's probably a fair representation of... Uh, any listeners who haven't seen it yet, um, you know, you you will identify with one or the other of the opinions expressed in this episode. I think we've got a pretty full range here. But it's been a really fun conversation. And I guess I'd like to just kind of uh, maybe wrap some things up just by kind of checking them with each other. I, I've already talked a little bit about how I've been spending my time. And uh, Dice K, I know you just made a pretty significant move. I was watching one of your videos, which is not as much movie talk, but really more of just kind of a, a life update were you talking about uh, moving your, your your family, your household, and, and most significantly, perhaps to our listeners, your incredible DVD and Blu-ray <laughs> and Laserdisc collection? And, and let me make sure I heard this right. You were basically trotting uh, bagfuls of discs on your bicycle from your old place to where you've moved into now tell us a little bit more about that oh thank you very much for mentioning it so uh so first of all i just want to say yeah um uh you know richard and robert it's a great pleasure i I hope this is the the first of many occasions i can i can speak to you about cinema and, and and other things but uh yes so david yes thank you very much for mentioning i i was uh i moved actually a few days ago uh, from my old place to now this new place, and the distance is only about about ten minutes, not even by bicycle. Uh, but uh, we were told by the we have a in, it's very common in Japan to hire a moving company and put everything in boxes and and uh, uh, have them lift the heavy furniture and, and the like. So we had the moving company person come to our house, our old house, and he came into the room with all the discs. <laughs> 
And he said, he added an extra, like, I don't know, $2,000 <laughs> to the estimate. I, I was looking, wow. my wife my wife said to me, you know, it's going to be this X amount of money. And I said to her, like, oh, oh, gosh, I'm so sorry. I don't want to burden our family funds on my collection. So I, I wow. said to my wife there, okay, I will, it's only 10 minutes. So I will transport my stuff as much as I can bit by bit by bicycle because we don't have a car so uh you know we have a there's a bicycle which which has a, a back seat and a front uh, box kind of thing and so i could i i thought oh there's a bag i have three bags i can carry one bag on my like a backpack and i can carry one other bag in the front part and then one other bag in the back part so that's three bags total every time that's the calculation and so i put in all <laughs> yeah. these discs uh, uh, in those three bags, and I, I made the trek about, oh gosh, it, it was at least uh, two or three times a day for a good th- three weeks, uh, going back that and forth. So just yes. incredible! What what a heroic effort! And yeah, you know, you're I, a superhero. <laughs> no, but the thing the thing about it was yeah. is I wanted to keep everything in order in spine number right. order, but right. it was impossible. Just, I kept everything well, in order in the bags, but when I when I took the things out of the bags and put them in the empty rooms, it was impossible because piles fell down and things. So, I'm uh, uh, everything became out of order. So I'm crossing my fingers, nothing got lost in the in the yeah. shuffle. I don't think anything has, but but my goodness, you think you look at these discs and you think, oh, these are light things. They're, they're not heavy at all. But when you pile them on. And you try to oh, lift yeah. them up. My goodness, it does a number on. I I still have soreness all over my body, but uh, uh, it was worth well, it. Definitely yeah. worth it. Yeah. Well, it was pretty pretty. You know, I mean, I've seen you know videos of your collection, and just knowing the sheer bulk. I mean, I've got the full Criterion run of Blu-rays to DVDs and and all of that. The spine number releases, but you've got all of that. Plus the laser discs, plus so much other stuff, and I'm like, wow, dice game, man. <laughs> because I've been in the same house here since the '90s. I've been in my house since uh, 1996. No immediate plans to move, but boy, will I uh, rue the day that I have to get this stuff up and out of here. So I'm glad that the the move is behind you now. So you're you're settling in and kind of getting used to the new digs. Yes, I'm sitting in the the, the area now. It's a big mess. But uh, you know, I can imagine. yeah. But it's yeah. it's. I'm I've just been last night. I I was after I I rewatched Savages. I decided, yep. oh, I'll spend the last hour uh, and just start to try to put some order out of chaos. Um, and so, much like the film Savages, which talks about order and chaos, I suppose there's also a lot of order and chaos in the room at the moment. So uh, there's yes. uh, yeah. So I'm I'm at spy number. What is it? One. I'm at salesman. I'm oh, at spine okay. number 122. Oh, yeah, so I'm, that, I'm That's still pretty mature. early on. you got a long ways to go. <laughs> that's right, yes. But, uh, uh, I'm going to pray for you, Dice K. Tonight, <laughs> just know I'll be praying. And is this your forever home, right? You have no plans to move in the near future again, do you? Um, that is up in the air, actually. So it oh, might, no. yes. So this might be... The, but actually, I, I don't see it as a, as, a, uh, as a kind of a bad thing. I, it's, it's kind of fun to to rearrange things and uh, set up the shelves and, and do all that. But um, it's just a matter of, how should I put it? Like, like 
I never knew how high a pile of DVDs and Blu-rays could go until I, I actually did it. And I, it, it's, it, it can be pretty high, but my goodness, if, if it's off balance just a little bit, you better stand back or you better support it. Otherwise, it's going to fall over. So, so it's uh, it, it, all these little details I never thought about before are coming, coming around to me. So. Uh, but I feel it, like that's a metaphor for living in the world in 2022. <laughs> <laughs> uh, perhaps, but it, it's it's all it's all good. I mean, it, and it's all for the fun of uh, Criterion's and for cinema, after all. So, well, so. all right. Well, I certainly wish you many months, if not years, <laughs> of, of contentment living in your new your new place and with your family too. So, um, thank glad you. That uh, you've got the the heavy lifting part of behind you now. It's just a matter of getting it all orderly once again so robert why don't you catch us up a little bit with what you've been up to um i'm currently pitching a show with peter dinklage's estuary films which is super fun um and then i think i might have told you david but Mm -hmm. i'm not sure if the others know i discovered that my grandfather was a secret agent for the oss in world war ii and (laughs) um i found like a ton of like like gold coins that are hollowed out so you can take them apart and put like microfilm in them and like watches uh pardon me old westerny pocket watches that you can also do the same thing with i found uh passports where his name was actually uh it was his photo but not his name julian too so it was julio solana and so I'm unpacking that, and of course I'm going to turn it into a delightful television show. Yeah, <laughs> there's a screenplay is writing itself right right before you, you know? 100%. The, so many cool elements. That there. is so, so well, that's, cool. Wow. You can yeah. hide things in coins? Like, yeah, like hit it. Wow. Because some of the gold coins are real gold coins, I guess, is like, oh, they'll look at the gold coins in, the, in their suitcase in my grandfather's suitcase and assume that they're all gold coins but then some of them were lighter and i was like what's going on with this and i started fiddling with it and then it just popped apart and i was like "Mm." (laughs) so little hidden compartments i mean that's just brilliant yeah sounds exciting so that's glorious those are the two projects that i'm actively working on now um and the in terms of writing i'm still doing my delightful weekly uh, noir articles i'm about to start a mini odyssey on the noir alfred hitchcock films or at least what people consider noir i think Mm. hitchcock is sort of a you know genre unto himself but a bunch of them like i confess rebecca suspicion sort of can be considered noir so i'm diving into i'm diving into those now and some of them are great and some of them are not holding up well Mm. Um, but it's fun. I haven't revisited Hitchcock in quite some time. So that's what's going on with me. <laughs> cool. Well, we'll definitely have links to that stuff in the show notes and uh, give chance listeners a chance to follow up on your writings. But yeah, really fascinating. And thanks for, sometimes I know you have to be very hush-hush on some of the details. So it's nice to hear a little bit more meat on the bones, as they say. Oh, I've uh, decided I'm just going to start talking because the last <laughs> time I was like silent and I'm like, I can't tell anyone about the fact that I'm working on a show about the Oregon Trail with the producer of Star Wars for like a year and a half. And then Yellowstone 1883 was sold. And I was like, well... Well, that show's going nowhere. So from now on, I don't care. I'm just going to say. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I appreciate that this is a place where you can get the scoops on what Robert's up to. So, Richard, how about you? Well, how do you want to 
check in with our listeners. Well, now I can't, I can't, I can't rival any of that. <laughs> I, I, still, yeah, yeah. I still work from home, so I spend ninety percent of my life at this desk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. I, well, you def- definitely keep the Facebook feed flowing there, and you are a great follow. Definitely, always just interesting stuff floating through the timeline there. And as always, I very much appreciate your willingness to jump into just about any type of film and talk about it with me. So thank you once again for your generous contributions of time and and thought in in this podcast. So listeners, we've come to the end of uh, this episode. I will do my best to make sure that we don't have to wait another month and a half for uh, episode 124. But I do have another very similar panel. I don't think there's any guests on this episode that are signed up for the next one. But we're going to be talking about uh, Pierpaolo Pasolini's The Canterbury Tales, uh, part of his trilogy of life. And he got some great guests on the spreadsheet for that. So we'll definitely do our scheduling magic and get another group together to talk about this uh, very provocative, very lively work from Pasolini. So that'll be coming up hopefully pretty soon, but I don't know exactly when or where quite yet. So keep listening in, and thank you for your ongoing support and feedback. We really appreciate it. And uh, for now, we'll say goodbye as we stop on the Spaniel heading out the door. (laughs) Bye-bye. We don't need no blackbirds to bye-bye. Or hooty owls to ask us for why. While bees and sheep need not apply. For we want our sleeping dogs that lie. Forgive us all you ASPCA. We're going through a most distressing phase. Now bourgeois boxers, even old dog trays. Are victims of our very latest craze. We're stepping on a spaniel, falling off a log. Syncopated annual, be putting on the dog. No difference if it's pedigreed or a mutt, I know. It doesn't matter when you're doing that strut, hi ho. Stepping on a spaniel, it's on the up and up. Syncopated annual, be pouncing on a pub. Close your eyes and give those guys a big smooch right now. As you're jumping up and down and stepping on the pooch bow. Stepping on a spaniel, falling off a log. Syncopated annual, be putting on the dog. Dog sound setters know their batters and must submit. Every rover has come over to get with it. Stepping on a spaniel, isn't it a lark? Syncopated annual, be barking after dark. Right now, as you're jumping up and down and stepping on a pooch bow. <laughs> no, don't stop. I want more.